0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're going to continue our study this morning of 2 Thessalonians. And in our last study, we looked at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. And I tried to stress that Paul was promising them, the first century Thessalonian believers, rest from their persecution and their suffering, and he promised that this would come at the parousia. We saw this in 6 and 7. It says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, Paul promises the first century. You got, you got to, we just have to keep that in mind, okay? He's not writing Thessalonians to us, he's writing it to people who lived in the first century. This was a letter they received, they heard in their time period. And he tells them basically two things here. He says, God is going to repay with affliction those who are afflicting you, they're suffering, they're under a lot of persecution. Like Sharon talked about today, it's just hard to imagine what some Christians go through, even today. Gary said that's why the Second Amendment is so important. Uh, Yes, that's a good reason, okay? All right, he's going to pay... Repay with affliction those who are afflicting them, and he says, I'm going to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Now, we focused on the fact that God is going to give them, He's going to give them relief, He's going to give them a break from persecution at the revelation, at the second coming, at the parousia. Now, for our study this morning, we're going to be looking at just verse 8 and dealing with the coming vengeance. He says in 8, In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Yeshua. Now, Paul amplifies here the judgment of the ungodly that he alluded to in verse 6. He said, God is going to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's going to happen at the revelation. Yeshua is coming in flaming fire, and He's going to inflict vengeance. Now, we'll look at the vengeance in a minute, but first I want to focus on who the vengeance is coming upon. He says, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Yeshua. Now, some scholars think that these two phrases refer to two distinct groups, the Gentiles who do not know God, whereas those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Yeshua refers to the Jews. Others think that Paul is just using synonymous parallelism here in which both descriptions refer to both Jews and Gentiles. Marshall rightly points out that sometimes the Gentiles are described as those who are ignorant of God, and the Jews as those who are disobedient. Paul also accuses both groups of being disobedient. Also, both Old Testament and New Testament occasionally describes the Jews as those who are ignorant of the true God. So what Marshall says is true here, you know, We could find cases for both going back and forth on this. But I want you to notice what Paul says to the Thessalonians in the first letter. He says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then in his second letter, he says, those who do not know God. So this is the exact phrase in the Greek, who do not know God. And this exact phrase is only used twice in the New Testament, once in 1 Thessalonians and once in 2 Thessalonians. The first usage says that it is Gentiles who don't know God, and the second usage says those who don't know God. So who do you think maybe those are? Well, Paul told the Thessalonians in the first letter that it was the Gentiles. Now, would it make sense to use the exact same Greek phrase to the same people and then change his meaning? I don't think so. I think he's referring to the Gentiles. I think he's saying the same thing here. I told you it's the Gentiles who don't know God, so in the second letter he says those who don't know God. I think that is a reference to the Gentiles. Now, maybe to back up my position a little, let me give you some scholarly advice here from Gordon Clark. Gordon Clark says, Furthermore, there are articles before both do not know and do not obey. Were there but one article, there could have been only one class. But two articles strongly indicate, indeed, grammatically demand two classes. The conclusion is that do not know God refers to the Gentiles, and do not obey refers to the Jews. The grammar is the determinative. All right? So Clark agrees with me, or I agree with Clark. I don't know which it is. But anyway, I think we're on the same page. Let me just further elaborate on this. Paul, speaking of Israel, writes this. In Romans 9, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them, the Israelites, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the worship and the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed. Amen. So the Israelites knew God. They alone had the covenants. They alone had the promises. Conversely, Paul says of the Gentiles were strangers to the covenants. In Ephesians two, eleven and twelve he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by that which is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So we have two different groups that were persecuting the Thessalonians. We saw that earlier. We saw when the church was first established, it was the Gentiles basically that ran them out of town. But later, it seems like the persecution was mainly coming from the Jews. So both groups are going to be dealt with. When the Lord returns at the revelation of Christ, he is going to deal with their persecutors, whether they be Jew, whether they be Gentiles. Now, he says, then he says this phrase here, who do not obey the gospel. Now, this is one of those phrases that the lordship crowd uses to prove that their obedience, obedience to the gospel is necessary for salvation. All right. They'll jump on verses like this. And you can see why they they don't obey the gospel. Commentator Stephen Cole says this on that verse. He says, Believing the gospel entails obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.16 equates believing in Jesus with obeying Jesus. Now, here's the problem. I agree with that statement. And the reason I agree with that statement is I think it is obedience to believe the gospel. Okay? That is an act of obedience. He quotes uh, John three 36. Let's look at that. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. All right, now the word translated here, does not obey, in the ESV, it's translated believeth not, in the King James, is <clears throat> not the common word to not believe, which is epistuo. But the word used here is apitheo. Now, the Greek lexicon of the New Testament by Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich, and Danker makes a very insightful comment on apitheo, I think, which sheds light here. He says, since in the view of the early Christians, the supreme disobedience was the refusal to believe their gospel, apitheo may be restricted in some passages to the meaning disbelieve, be an unbeliever. So that makes sense when you're looking at that verse and you say, well, what says they don't obey? Well, that's what they're not obeying. They're not obeying the gospel. It, to disbelieve, it's to be an unbeliever. Now, Cole goes on to say, Paul referred to the obedience of faith. So he's trying to you know, bolster his case here that you have to obey. And he quotes Romans 1.5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Now, Paul was the apostle to the nations, and his calling was to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, the significance here of the genitive pistis, of faith, is disputed. Some take it as a subjective genitive, giving it the sense obedience that comes from faith, but can also be taken as an appositional construction and should be translated as... The obedience that is faith. See, acceptance of the gospel in faith can be described as an act of obedience. Look what he, Paul says in Romans ten sixteen, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So they didn't obey the gospel. And then he says, who's believed? And obeyed here is hupokuo, it means to obey the parallelism though here of these lines reveals that disobedience consists in a failure to believe. Because they were called to believe the gospel, all right? Especially Israel. Israel had been prepared their whole life for the gospel of Christ. The whole system was built on that. And Christ shows up and they disbelieve. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. So over and over and over, we're told that eternal life is a result of believing. Now, in a chapter where Yeshua continually says, You can't believe unless you're called, John chapter 6, he says this in 6.29. Yeshua answered them, This is the work of God. That you believe. That is the work of God. Okay, you can't do that on your own. God does it. That's His work. He gives you faith in whom He has sent. John 6 35. Yeshua said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So coming to Him, believing in Him are synonymous. If you believe in Christ, you'll have eternal life. John 6 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And when I read this verse, I think of Moses and the serpent in the wilderness. What did the children of Israel have to do to get cured from the snake bite? They had to look at the snake. Well, then what did they have to do? They had to do some kind of action or something, didn't they? No, that's the Bible, just look. This will heal you if you look at it. It's just too easy for some people. John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So according to Scripture, a person becomes a Christian when they understand the Gospel and believe the Gospel of Yeshua, who is the Christ. At that moment, they're placed in the body of Christ. They're given Christ's righteousness. They are indwelt by God. They're sure of heaven as they were already there. They're in Christ. And the Scripture make it quite clear that salvation is a free gift of God's grace. There's not a process. You believe and then God waits to see. Let me see how they do here. Let me see if they clean up their act. We can't do any of that stuff. We should be doing that stuff once we become a Christian, but it's not in our power. You know, so many people, you've got to clean your act up and then God will accept you. Forget it. You're never going to make it. Okay? And yet Cole goes on to say, If someone claims to believe in Jesus as Savior, but he isn't submitting to Jesus as Lord, his claim is questionable. So submitting in uh, in every area? I I mean, how much submitting is there here? Okay? I mean, is it total submission? Do you like singing the song, I Surrender All? I can't stand that song. Okay? Okay? Because I don't know anybody that has really surrendered all. We struggle to, we desire to, I think. But, you know, I surrender all. I just, I don't know. It's hard for me, okay? (laughs) I just, I'm not there. He says, those who live in disobedience to the Lord Jesus do not know Him and will face His judgment. Okay, so this is the importance of obedience. Now, the first question you should ask when you see something like this, how much disobedience is not permissible. Okay, we all know we have problems with disobedience. None of us live a perfectly obedient life to Christ. Our thought life isn't what it should be. Sometimes our actions on the road aren't what they should be. We don't always live the way we're called to live. We're not always imitators of Christ. So, he says those who live in disobedience, how much disobedience? Is one act of disobedience enough to Say, so you're out. Now, in view of this, let's, let's do a little scenario here. You think you're a believer. You trusted Christ. But you're living in some areas of disobedience. There's some areas of your life you're having struggle with, and you know you're not being obedient there. Okay, so then what? Because you read this, you those who live in disobedience... To the Lord, do not know him and will face his judgment. So according to him, I got some areas of disobedience. I don't know him. What do I do now? What should you do? What would you tell a person to do? Well, you should believe in the Lord, right? Because if, you, if you're going to face the judgment, if you don't know him, you should believe in him. But you say, I did that. It didn't work. It didn't take. All right? Because I'm still disobeying in areas of my life. So what recourse is this person left to? Well, I I believed, I thought I believed, but obviously I'm not perfect, so now what? See, this can be very confusing and very discouraging. And this is why BBN took MacArthur off their radio broadcast, because they said he was damaging Christians, because he was causing them to constantly question their faith. Constantly question whether they're a believer. And listen, people, if you don't think you are a believer, what is your motivation to live for Christ? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, okay, I'm not a believer anyway, so what does it matter, all right? But if you realize that faith in Christ and faith alone makes you a child of God, when you have sin in your life, instead of thinking, I must not be a Christian, you realize, I'm not supposed to be living like this, and you repent of your sin, and you ask God for forgiveness. And 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful, He's just. To forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what we need to do. And we need to learn to let the Spirit control our lives. And we've been over this so many times. The Spirit can't control you unless you're spending time in the Word of God. Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.18, parallel text. Let the Word of Christ abide in you. We have to be cleansing our lives with the Word of God and then we know what the Spirit wants and the Spirit can guide us and lead us. Another verse that the lordship crowd loves to use is 1 John 3.9. They love to use it in certain translations. Get this verse, people. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. First of all, this is a bad translation. Okay? Let me show you a good translation. Christian Standard Bible. This is a good translation. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Nothing about practicing in the text at all. Because his seed remained in him, he is not able to sin because he's been born of God. So this is saying that if you are born of God, you do not sin because you cannot sin. Now, how does that make you feel? (laughs) According to this verse, you've not been born of God. Now, before you go questioning your salvation, hang on, okay? Let me try to clear this up. Does Scripture anywhere teach that believers sin? Uh, how about, let's just stick with 1 John, and let's go to one eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth not in us. So, I guess we can't say we don't have any sin, but... Three nine says, we don't sin if you're born of God. You can't sin. But here it says, we're self-deceived if we say we don't have sin. Well, look at 1 John 2.1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's writing to the Christians, children, that you may not sin. But, I know you probably will, so if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua the Christ. The righteous. So here Christians are told not to sin, but if they do sin, they have an advocate with the Father. So which is it? Do Christians sin or are they unable to sin? Well, when we read 1 John 3 9 in the Christian Standard Bible, or the King James Version does the same thing, we're faced with what seems to be a blatant contradiction. Okay? Does Scripture contradict itself? no that 's the analogy of faith that 's the first law of hermeneutics. The scripture does not contradict itself, so we got a problem we've got to figure out what it is. There must be a way to reconcile this, but the means of reconciliation is far from agreed upon. okay There are at least eight translations of this verse to try to explain what this means because it 's complicated all right Eight views at least now, if you want to go into this in depth. In our study of 1 John, we spent two weeks on this verse, okay? Just trying to explain. I gave you all the views, and then I give you the right view. <laughs> so, for this morning, let me just skip to the right view to try to explain this to you, all right? 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. This is the context for what he's talking about here. Now, the sin here that distinguishes the children of the devil is the sin which has its root in lawlessness. This is the Greek anomia. Anomia is rebellion against God. It is a sin that believers cannot commit because God's seed remains in them. So the children of God do sometimes commit sin. We all know that, alright? But the one thing we cannot do is commit anomia. That is the sin of rebellion, the sin of the devil. We could say that the sin that John is talking about in 1 John 3, 4 through 10 is the sin of rejecting Christ. That's the sin a believer cannot commit. Okay? Just can't do it. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin. By that it means reject Christ. Because his seed remains in him, he cannot reject Christ because he's been born of God. So believers, we sin and we sin quite often. Sometimes we sin on a regular basis, but our sin is not a sin unto death that John talks about. This verse is telling us we cannot commit this sin that unbelievers do. The sin that leads to death is rejecting Christ. So that's not a good verse for them. But the Lordship group, when you talk about obedience, they'll go to verses like Hebrews 5:9, and being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation. To all who obey him. Now, they use this verse to try to prove that obedience is necessary for eternal life. Now, if Paul is using salvation here as justification or eternal life, then works are a condition. This verse is very similar to James chapter 2. And the real thing you have to understand here is what is salvation? What, What is he talking about? What does he mean here? Because if he's teaching salvation by works, that doesn't fit with the analogy of faith. We just read a bunch of scriptures that says it's faith, it's believing in Christ. And the scriptures clearly teach eternal life is a gift of grace. Now, a true understanding of Hebrews 5.9 must begin with the definition of salvation. And the majority of English readers, most of us, we see this word and we automatically see the word saved or salvation and we think of eternal life, Right? A Hebrew wouldn't do that. The Greek here is sozo, save, and the noun soteria, salvation, have a wide range of possible meanings. They can be referring to physical healing, rescue from danger, and usually that's how this is used in the Hebrew. Salvation is normally used of deliverance, physical deliverance. Deliverance of various kinds, all the way to preservation from final judgment, the way we think of it, as eternal life. And we need to determine its meaning from its usage and the context. And the context here is not eternal life. The context is endurance or deliverance, if you read Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. The word obey is from the Greek word "hupo-kuo," and it comes from two words, hupo, meaning under, and okou meaning to hear. It means to obey, something you've heard. It speaks of submitting to something you've heard, and for this reason, I don't think he's using the word salvation here in the sense of justification, because the burden of Hebrews is not rescuing sinners from eternal death, it is the endurance of the saints through the trials and suffering they're dealing with. The salvation spoken of here is explicitly contingent on obedience, and indeed on an obedience modeled after Yeshua who also suffered. So he's trying to get these Christians to hang on, to don't give up. The persecution is tough, but don't turn away. Don't give up. So that's the issue here. It's eternal salvation, deliverance to all those who obey. Again, people, if, if our salvation is contingent on obedience, then the number one question we have to ask is, how much obedience? Anybody doing 100%? then you're falling short. The only one that did 100% was Christ. And so you could either have his obedience or you can come under the judgment of God because that's the only two choices, all right? You're not going to get there on your own obedience. It's all about Christ, all right? And He obeyed perfectly and we're in him, so guess what? We're good to go. We just need to really learn to see ourselves in Christ, Okay? Now, again, whenever I talk about this, people say, oh, you're giving Christians a license to sin. I'm not, okay? But I'm just telling you, your life's not going to affect heaven or hell. It's not about that, okay? What will happen if you live in sin is you will suffer the consequences right here, right now. Sin has a, a bad payday, okay? If you do wrong, you'll suffer for it. And so it's so much better to live in obedience to Christ if you want to know the joy of the Lord. If you want to have life and have it abundantly, live in obedience to the commands of Christ. But do that understanding you're not earning your way to heaven, okay? There's a country song that says, Working hard to get to heaven, where I come from. I'm like, well, you come from a bad place then, because you'll never make it. You'll never make it on your own. And you think an awful lot of yourself if you think you can earn your way into God's kingdom. You don't understand depravity. You don't understand sin. You don't understand why Christ died. All right? All right, let's back up in the verse. He talks about inflaming the Lord's coming, and one of the things he says, He's coming in flaming fire. Now, we talked about there's confusion over whether this goes with verse 7 or whether it goes with verse 8. If it goes with verse 7, it's referring to the angels. If it goes with verse 8, it's referring to judgment. Inflaming fire is a symbol of God's judgment. I think we're all aware of that. If you've been reading your Bible, Paul pictures Christ as the divine judge who will deliver his people from the persecutors and he's going to deliver them because he's bringing flaming fire on those who disobey. Now, having said that, you know, fire is very often a symbol of punishment. But this is not always the case. Okay? I mean, when Moses saw the burning bush... That wasn't judgment. He was just, God was there. All right? So he stopped to see, hey, what's going on here? How about the pillar of fire that led the Israelites? That wasn't judgment. It was a display of the glory of God. So fire can be a display of the glory of God. It can be a display of His wrath and judgment. Again, we have to look at it in context. But the repeated references in our passage to Isaiah 66... And the description of judgment in verse 8, I think, direct the reader's attention to the fire of judgment. Now, in this theophany, the Lord Yeshua will inflict with vengeance those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel. And he's going to inflict vengeance upon them. Now, vengeance here is from the Greek word ekdikesis, which means vengeance, punishment, vindictiveness. Vindication. It's a present active participle. What we have to understand here, this is, don't think of your, okay, vengeance. This is not emotional. This is not vindictive. This is justice. And that's what the day of judgment will be like for those who persecuted the Thessalonians. In the Greek, the word rendered vengeance has no association with vindictiveness. It is a compound based on the same root as the word rendered righteous in verse 5 and 6. And it has the idea of administration of justice. God is going to minister justice. And I think we're people who love justice unless it's for us. Right? We love it for everybody else. I'd like to see a little justice in this country. Hog and Vine describe ectogasis like this, they say, ectogasis is that which proceeds out of justice, not as is often the case with human vengeance, out of a feeling of indignation or a sense of injury. There is thus no element of vindictiveness, of taking vengeance or self-gratification in the judgments of God. They are both holy and right. And I think we understand that. God is righteous. He is just. So the language of this verse is taken from Isaiah 66.15 in the Greek version where he says he, he says in Isaiah 66, He will return vengeance and wrath. And he, you combine that with Isaiah 66.4, it says, Because I called to them and they did not obey me. It describes the wrath of God that he visits on the disobedient. Now, this coming vengeance is what's called elsewhere in Scripture, the day of the Lord. And we talked about the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, all right? This is all this day of vengeance is also called in the Bible the great tribulation. Same thing. It is God's judgment that was going to come upon his people Israel because of their disobedience. So vengeance is promised to come on the disobedient Jewish people all through the scriptures, okay? This is not something that God, you know, at the very end said, look, I'm just tired of this. He promised him this. He told him this when he called him to be his people. This is Deuteronomy 28. Now, if you're not familiar with Deuteronomy 28, you need to be. All right? It's the covenantal blessings and cursings. you got 15 verses that say, if you do this, I will bless you. And he talks all the blessings. I mean, they're, they're amazing. And then, uh-oh, you get to verse 16, but if you don't obey. And the curses are like three times as long as the blessings. But notice what he tells Israel. Because you did not serve Yahweh, your God, with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all the things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom Yahweh will send against you. So you won't serve me? You're going to serve your enemies. You're going to serve them in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. Doesn't sound like a good position to be in. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Over and over, God you know, comes to Israel. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll judge you. I'll discipline you. Look at what Yeshua taught in the temple to the chief priests and the elders. They were looking for occasions to you know, arrest him. And he, he tells them this parable. He said, uh, he still had one other, a beloved son. The son refers to himself, Yeshua. Yeshua. He says, finally, he sent all the prophets. They beat the prophets. They stole the prophets. So he sends him his son. They'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him. He's talking about himself. They're going to kill me. They killed the son. And they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he'll come and destroy the tenants. And give their vineyard to others. Okay, Lord's telling them, God's gonna come and destroy you. Alright? Well, when is all this to happen? When when's this is this still some day in our future? Or when? How do we nail this down as far as time? Well, again, in 2 Thessalonians, it says the Lord's gonna repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as us. When? When's it gonna happen? When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven. So when was the Lord to come inflicting vengeance? Is this to happen at the end of time? The end of world history? The end of the world? Notice what Luke tells us in the Olivet Discourse about when the parousia, the judgment, the resurrection will happen. He says in Luke 21.20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, now he's talking about pe- he's talking to people who live in Jerusalem in the first century. When you see it surrounded by armies, then know its desolation has come near. You can figure that out, right? Uh oh, we're in trouble. We've got a bunch of armies surrounding us, but we're in a fortress, so it's okay. Jerusalem's a fortress. He said, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, you know, so many people said the great tribulation is going to come on the whole world. Then what good does it do to go to the mountains? How are you getting away from it if you just go into the mountains? And let those who are inside the city depart. That is counterintuitive, people. Okay, you're in a fortress, the army's coming. What do you want to do? Stay in the fortress. God said, Nope, get out of it. Because it's going down. If you're in there, get out. Let those who are in the country. Not enter it. You know, that's going to be the temptation. Get to the fort. Stay in the fort. No. Get out of there. And then he says this. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Now, the word vengeance here is the very same exact Greek word used in our text. Ekdikais. And we see here that the destruction of Jerusalem is the vengeance that Paul told the Thessalonians was coming. Now you say, well, how does that 900 miles away in Jerusalem, that vengeance help me? I'll tell you that later, okay? Hang on to that thought, all right? But Luke tells us here that all things which are written are going to be fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. What does he mean by all things that are written? He's referring to all prophecy. All the prophecy that God has given down through the ages will all be fulfilled in the destruction of this city. Daniel tells us the very same thing in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Daniel says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Now that's Israel, that's Jerusalem, okay? That's Daniel's people, that's Daniel's city. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. So Daniel was told that 70 weeks had been determined on his people and city, and by the end of this prophetic time period, God promised that six things would be accomplished. And one of those that Daniel was told would happen at the end of this period is that it would seal both vision and prophecy. Now, this is. This is a great text because almost every Bible commentator is in agreement to what this means, which is really rare when that ever happens. When the stars align, you know, wow, you guys are all agreeing on this. The Hebrew commentaries are in agreement that the meaning of to seal up vision and prophecy means the end and complete fulfillment of all prophecy. In other words, all prophecy will end. The prophecy that have been given will be fulfilled. So according to Daniel and according to Luke, this happened. Now, Daniel's prophecy then tells of a time when all prophecy would cease to be given and what had been given would be filled. When would that be, Daniel? Does Daniel tell us? Well, Daniel's vision ends with the destruction of Jerusalem. And we know when that happened, okay? Daniel nine twenty four seal up vision and prophet, for these are the days of vengeance. So Luke is saying the same thing that Daniel said which is that at the time Jerusalem was destroyed, all prophecy would be fulfilled. So what does that include? Well, that would include the second coming. That would include the resurrection, the judgment, the big three, okay? And every other prophecy, okay, that God had made. There was prophecies that we read Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, the Lord prophesied, you will eat your children. Famine will be so bad, you will eat your children. That happened, in the destruction of Jerusalem. And Josephus records it. Okay? He records a woman taking her child, roasting her child, and eating it. The soldiers were so repulsed at that that they just left and couldn't even fathom that she's eating her own children. I mean, I don't, that's kind of hard to wrap your head around. But God told him it would happen in Deuteronomy 28. It happened when the vengeance came upon him. All right? So all prophecy is fulfilled in the destruction Everything prophesied to Israel will be filled at the time Jerusalem is destroyed. Now here's something you've got to understand. You've got to get this. All eschatology is Israel's eschatology. You got that? We talk about eschatology, the time, the study of the end times, all right? It's all Israel's eschatology. The church has no last days. We have no eschatology. We have no end times. We are in an everlasting covenant. Okay? Amen. So we know when the Lord's revelation would happen. We know that when the Lord was going to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and grant relief, it happened at AD 70 when some of the Thessalonians would still be alive. That seems clear enough. But it obviously isn't clear to everybody. Right? Because how many people out there still think... It's in the future. People that should know better say it's still in the future. Now, along with this whole controversy with Gary DeMar and everybody attacking Gary DeMar, um, in an article entitled Theological Jenga and Full Preterism, posted last Monday, Doug Wilson writes this. He says, it should be pretty plain from the things I have written on eschatology that I am what is called A partial preterist. And so I don't think I'm giving away any secrets here. All right. Let me just stop here for a second and ask you, what is a partial preterist? Okay, yeah. Thank you, Veronica. Let me tell you a definition of a partial preterist. First of all, they're futurists, okay? Partial futurists. (laughs) But a partial preterist is someone who believes in two second comings. Now, if there's two, the second one would be a third coming, wouldn't it? But they believe in two second comings because they think that the Lord did return in judgment in eighty seventy, but yet he—that's just a precursor. He's coming again in the future, and they'll pick some verses that talk about the second coming, and they're not in agreement on which ones mean what. Okay, some of the verses refer to eighty seventy, and they pick some verses and say this one's talking about the future. And again, they are not in an agreement on which verses go to future and which verses go to A.D. 70. And some of them got to the point where there's no verses for the future. They just believe it. Okay, they ran out of verses. Let me just say this. There are no verses in the New Testament. None. Zero. Zip. About a coming of the Lord that's a long way off. There isn't. Every time he talks about coming, he says, Soon, shortly, quickly, some of you standing there, this generation, there's no verses about the Lord coming and say, This is thousands of years in the future, people. No, none of those. So why, how do they decide? They just read the text and they think, This sounds like really bad, so we'll put that off to the future. It's always near. And there is no talk in the New Testament about a third coming. It just isn't, okay? It's made up. It's nonsense, all right? And these people are all real big on the creeds. Well, the creeds say, the creeds don't talk about two comings. They talk about one. But you've got it divide it up into two. Where's that in the creeds? Well, Wilson goes on. At the same time, I don't believe that I have ever written down my reasons for rejecting full preterism. At least not in one place. Then he goes on to list his reasons for rejecting full preterism. And I just want to focus on one of the reasons today. And he's a... You read his stuff and it kind of makes you smile because he's a good writer and he's you know, kind of clever as he's writing. But one of his reasons is the confession of Martha. That's what he titles it. Here's a, here's a reason to reject preterism. The confession of Martha. And he cites John eleven twenty four. 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on... The last day. Okay, so that's because of Martha's confession. We'll, he knows now that there's going to be a future coming. All right, listen to what he says. In common with faithful Second Temple Jews. I have not found these faithful Second Temple Jews that he's talking about. Okay, we'll talk about that a little more. Martha believed in a general resurrection at the end of history. Did you get that out of that verse? Do you get the end of history? She calls it the resurrection, and Jesus in no way contradicts this conviction of hers. That's because she didn't believe that. Okay, so he didn't convict. You know, he says rather he is about to give her a potent proleptic sign that the resurrection was coming at the end of history. Was going to be grounded in him, and then he adds this. He says the Pharisees taught a general resurrection. At the end of time. Again, which Pharisees taught this? Because I I don't know where it's at, all right? So Wilson says, in common with faithful Second Temple Jews, Martha believed in a general resurrection at the end of history, and the Pharisees believed in one at the end of time. Now, he just makes that statement, and that's it. You're supposed to believe him. Doesn't back it up, doesn't give me scripture, doesn't give me any text, just that's it, okay? Nothing to back it up. So, my question would be were the Jews, faithful Second Temple Jews, looking for a resurrection at the end of history? And how would you counter that or how would you deal with that? They were looking for deliverance history. Okay, that's one way. Well, See, I don't, I'm not sure why the Second Temple Jews would be looking for deliverance at the end of history when the Tanakh does not teach an end of history. Okay, if they're faithful Second Temple Jews, they know the Tanakh, right? They know their Bible. So let's look at some of the verses they would have known and see how you get the end of history. Genesis eight twenty one and 22. And when when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. People, you know that's true, okay? (laughs) It's evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. Well, the end of history would kind of be striking down everything, wouldn't it? While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Okay? Time's going to go on. Now folks will say, well, the Lord destroyed the earth the first time with water. He's going to destroy it next time with fire. So is God promising here to change His method of destroying everything? Is there somehow comfort in you know, saying, oh, I'm so glad I'll be burned up instead of drowned? No. Or is He promising not to destroy the earth again? Well, look at Psalm 148, 4-6. Praise Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Those are above the Rakia, okay? The waters above. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for He commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree... And it shall not pass away. What decree did God make concerning the establishment of heaven and earth that they will never pass away? We just read it in Genesis eight, twenty-one. God said He'd never again destroy every living thing as He had done. And I think God can be trusted because He keeps His word. And I think the Hebrews, the second temple faithful Jews, understood this. Look at Psalm seventy-eight, sixty-nine. He built a sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which He has founded forever. Now, if God established the earth forever, I don't know there'll be an end of history. Psalm 119.90. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth. It stands fast. think that's going to last forever, and also it's not spinning. Okay? <laughs> Ecclesiastes 1.4. A generation goes, a generation comes. The earth remains forever. Now, it sounds to me like these verses are teaching the earth is going to last. I don't see how the... Jews got an end of history out of this. So if the if the Tanakh doesn't teach an end of history, why would the Jews look for a resurrection at the end of history? They looked for a resurrection. But it wasn't at the end of history. It was the end of the age. And there's a big difference between an age ending and the end of history. William Barclay. <clears throat> William Barclay is an excellent historian. Okay? But he'll never be accused of orthodoxy. Okay? He's a liberal. You've got to understand that. So, you know, just... When you read anything by Barclay, understand that he is hes a liberal, but he's good when it comes to history. He's got a, um, with Peter walking on the water, he said there was ex- exceptionally dense lily pads in that area. I'm like, those are some big lily pads that you know Peter could walk right across them. I've never seen any lily pads that big, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, I mean... Yeah, he doesn't believe in miracles. All right, Barclay writes this. Time was divided by Jews into two great periods, the present age and the age to come. The present age is wholly bad. It's beyond all hope of human reformation. It can only be mended by the direct intervention of God. When God does intervene, the golden age, the age to come will arrive. But in between the two ages, there will come the day of the Lord. Which will be a time of terrible and fearful upheaval like the birth pains of a new age. That's right. That's exactly what will happen. Now, Zechariah 14 teaches us that the day of the Lord and the destruction of Jerusalem were connected. The day of the Lord is coming against Jerusalem. So the destruction of Jerusalem, which was the day of the Lord, marked the end of one age, which was the Jewish age, and the beginning of a new age, the Christian age or the new covenant age. All through the New Testament, we see two ages in contrast. This age, the age to come. The sad thing is people today read their Bibles and it says this age, so that's this age. No, it's this age to the, the people who were reading it 2,000 years ago. We're in the age to come now. All right? Matthew twelve thirty two, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, the word come here at the end of this verse is the Greek word "melo," which means about to. The age about to come. That's from the first century perspective, all right, about to be. We could translate this, the age about to come, in the first century. Now, many think the age to come was a sinless age. It's this perfect age. Well, not according to this verse. Sin against the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven in that age. Referring to the age of the new covenant, that's the age we live in right now. The age the biblical writers lived in was this age and the age to follow the age to come was not the end of history. So Wilson takes last day as the end of history, but Martha doesn't. Martha knows her eschatology. How does she know it? Because Yeshua taught her. All right? John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up at the last day. Now, the last day is a phrase that only occurs in John's gospel. Many times in John's gospel. So what is Yeshua referring to when he speaks of the last day? What will he raise up? Well, he's referring to the resurrection. And he tells us that this resurrection will happen on the last day. Well, when is the last day? Well, the traditional view held by most of the church is that the resurrection takes place at the end of time, like Wilson thinks. But let me just say here that the Bible does not speak of the end of time. Nowhere in the Bible will you find the expression, the end of time. (laughs) Let me correct that. Nowhere in a decent translation of the Bible, okay? They're coming out with new translations every day, and some are a little strange, so you don't know, but... Let me say in the Hebrew or Greek Bible, you won't find that, okay? The Bible speaks of the end time or the time of the end, which refer to the end of the age, but the end of the age is different than the end of time. Now, as I said earlier, to the Jews, time was divided into two great periods, Mosaic age and the Messianic age. During the Second Temple period, they distinguished between two types of olam. Olam means ages. The olam haza this world, and the olam haba, the world to come. The olam haza, or this world, is characterized by the rabbis as darkness, wickedness, sin, and death. It's called night. The olam haba, the age to come, was called by the rabbis. It was known as a time of joy, peace, light, eternity. It is known as day. So the rabbis connected olam haba and the resurrection. The resurrection happens in the age To come Now, according to the Bible, when was the resurrection to take place? Well, the Scripture testified that the time of the resurrection was to be the last day of the Old Covenant Age. We know this happened in AD 70 with the destruction of the Jewish temple. The disciples knew that the fall of the temple, the destruction of the city, meant the end of the Old Covenant Age and the inauguration of a new age. Look what Daniel says in Daniel 12, 1 and 2. At that time shall Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and th- now, okay, you know, this is talking to Daniel, Daniel's people or Israel, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation. Does that sound familiar to anybody? What's that sound like? Do what? It does. It's 8070, but who else said that? In Matthew 24, 21, Yeshua says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Nothing will equal the tribulation that was to come on Israel. And that's what Daniel says. A time of trouble such as there never has been. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Well, that sounds like Thessalonians. God's going to give rest to these faithful people. Everyone whose name be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's resurrection. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. A general resurrection of the faithful and the unfaithful. Now, when was Daniel told that the resurrection would happen? And what's funny in that article I referred about, uh, Wilson, he talks about this text in Daniel being such a difficult text we can't even begin to understand it. And I'm like, if you're a futurist, you're right. Because it won't make sense. If you take it at what it means and you understand it's eighty-seven, then it makes perfect sense. All right. Daniel twelve seven says this, and I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters, of the streams, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and a half a time. How long is that? Three and a half years. How long was the great tribulation? Three and a half years. Okay, just. Coincidence, maybe, but right. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end. Who are the holy people? Israel, the shattering of the power, their temple being destroyed, their city being comes to an end. These things would be finished. So Daniel says, when you see the shattering, the power of the holy people come to an end, which was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He says all these things, including the resurrection, would be finished. So the resurrection was to happen at the end of the Jewish age. I was talking to R.C. Sproul Sr. at one of the conferences, and I went up to him and I said, what keeps you from full preterism? And he said, the resurrection. And I said, what do you do with Daniel 12? And he said, nothing. (laughs) I mean, Daniel 12 was just clear, you know. And I really pressed him on it. And then he responded to me, the most pragmatic thing I've ever heard. He says, I have 100 people in this ministry that are counting on me to be taken care of. I just, that just made me sick because I'm like, is it right? Is it true? That's all that should matter. We can't get pragmatic. What happens if you teach the truth? You're saying if you teach the truth, your people will be out. Well, where's God in all this? Okay. Where is he in all this? So the resurrection was to happen at the end of the Jewish age, the old covenant age. We know this happened in 87 with the destruction of the Jewish temple. At this time, the second coming, the judgment, the resurrection, they all took place. Now the Thessalonians, they're suffering for their faith. But the Lord promised relief from their persecutors and he's going to bring wrath on their persecutors in the not too distant future. He's going to give them rest. Now, please remember this. Israel had crucified the Lord and publicly called down God's judgment on themselves. Okay, they did that. They said this. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. <laughs> and it was. It was. God's judgment on Israel in AD 70 matched their crime, which was the crucifixion of Christ. This crime was the worst in history. No, therefore, no punishment could be worse in history than came upon them. To call anything else the Great Tribulation is to downplay the immensity of that generation's guilt. Renan said this, talking about the Great Tribulation, from this time forth, hunger, rage, despair, and madness dwelt in Jerusalem. It was a cage of ferocious maniacs, a city resounding with howling and inhabited by cannibals of very hell. Titus, For his most part was atrociously vindictive. Every day, 500 unfortunates were crucified in the sight of the city with hateful refinements of cruelty or sufficient ground whereupon to erect them. So Titus is crucifying all these people outside the city so the people inside see this is what you're going to get. We're going to kill you and they're crucifying these people. We need to realize the scope of the Great Tribulation upon the people of Israel. It wasn't just those in Jerusalem that suffered and died. Also those all over Palestine. The whole country felt the judgment of God. Josephus wrote this, There was not a Syrian city which did not slay their Jewish inhabitants and were more bitter enemies to us than were the Romans themselves. David Clark writes this, It is doubtful if anything before or since has equaled it for ruthless slaughter and merciless destruction. From the locality of these churches in Asia Minor to the borders of Egypt, the land was a slaughterhouse. City after city was wrecked, sacked, and burned till it was recorded that the cities were left without an inhabitant. So this is a major event, people. This is not just, oh, well, that city got destroyed. No, this is covenantal. This is a judgment of God on disobedient people. Some of the Jews were swallowing gold coins and then trying to escape out of the city. So as soon as they caught them escaping, they'd cut their stomach open to take the gold out. So it didn't help them much. I mean, if you want to see, you know, the tragedy, the horror, the judgment that took place at this time, just read Josephus' War of the Jews. It goes into great detail. He's a witness. He's there. He's watching it. He's writing it down. You'll see what happened at that time. And then you take, you read War of the Jews and then read the book of Revelation. And they look like a transparency laid on top of one another. Okay? It's amazing. Destruction of Jerusalem was far more than the destruction of a city. Jerusalem, the temple, they were the center of worship of Yahweh. The God of gods and the Lord of lords. And with His destruction came a covenantal change. God's kingdom was taken from them. No longer would the Gentiles rule over God's kingdom because His kingdom is now a spiritual kingdom. Entered not by a physical birth, but by a spiritual birth. The old heavens and earth of Judaism were destroyed, and the new heavens and earth of spiritual Israel were established. It signaled the end of the old age. God had utterly destroyed the physical temple the genealogical records were totally destroyed. And you can't, if you don't have a genealogy, you can't be a priest. And if you can't be a priest, you can't have temple worship. And without temple worship, you don't have Judaism. You get the picture? It's all shut down. The old system of worship was forever over. And they have not sacrificed an animal since AD 70. They still call themselves Jews. They still say they believe in the Bible, but they don't really use it much because they've changed everything, because the heart of Old Testament Israel was sacrifice, priesthood, temple worship. The New Covenant Age was fully consummated at that time. So Luke says these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. And in Thessalonians, the first chapter, 2 Thessalonians, our verse, verse 8 says, he's going to inflict vengeance on those who do not. That vengeance came in the destruction of Jerusalem. It was 80-70 when the Lord returned The second time, and again, there's no mention of a third coming. He came in vengeance, destroying Jerusalem, ending the old covenant. This all happened, people, in the lifetime of the first century Thessalonians, just as the Bible said it would. The new covenant has no last days. The new covenant has no end times. The new covenant is an everlasting covenant of peace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word Father, it's amazing how clear your word is for those who have eyes to see. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Lord, may we ever have the heart of Bereans that we would not accept things that we hear without digging, without studying, without questioning everything we hear. Thank you, Lord, for the day and age we live with so many study helps. We are without excuse, Lord. Thank you for your grace to us. Amen. Okay, questions. Comments. Okay, uh, Bo writes Since becoming a preterist, I've wondered whether the earth in the new covenant age will remain a testing ground for man, or will the Yahweh eventually destroy the earth itself? Well, as I said, I, I don't think, at least the Bible doesn't talk about it. You know, it talks about the earth remaining. And yeah, this is a testing ground, a proving ground for man. I think I, I like to look at it as boot camp. Okay? And graduation day is going to heaven. I don't think anybody cried or moaned about getting out of boot camp. Okay, you look forward to that day, okay? But it seems like we're not all that quick to ready to go to heaven, but you know, here is a time of learning, a time of growing, a learning to trust God, learning to be faithful to Him. And then one day we go. Uh, Norm says, and last week you said, I had a big appetite when I was told I hoped it was just an appetizer. Amen. I guess, are you telling me you're full, Norm? I know you're not full, (laughs) but hopefully you're satisfied. Um, uh, Boy, some of these things, I have a hard time telling what's from where. All right. This is from Gary and Chris in PA. Beautiful Dave, the Lord has really gifted you and blessed you to teach and be a true shepherd to those who have ears to hear. I had my surgery on Tuesday, and I'm recovering slowly, and I'm very thankful to the Lord's unfailing mercy and grace. Thanks for your love and those who prayed for me, Gary and PA. And then Gary said, P.S., love you and this fellowship. That is so cool. He lives in PA, but he loves our fellowship, okay, because he shares with us. He joins with us. Now, it's virtual. I know it's not as good as being here, okay, but... We're, we're so thankful that you know, we have the opportunity to share what we're doing, and we're glad that you people feel like you're part of the family. And, and I think the best designation for you all is extended family, because that's how we look at you all. And hopefully soon, <laughs> five, six weeks, uh, we'll be having our conference, and hopefully you'll be there, and uh, we'll see you face to face. Uh, John writes Pastor Dave BBC bless our socks off continually and we thank God for leading us to this place of our daily manna. A question. Could the gentiles include the old covenant Jews who refused to obey the gospel by refusing Christ Deuteronomy 18 they made themselves Gentiles along with other Gentiles because they knew the covenant was already inaugurated when the gospel was being offered. Yeah, God talks about that. You know, he says, those, Hosea, those who were my people are no longer my people. Meaning, yeah, they're Gentiles. He's done away, but he's going to call the people back, he said. So, yeah, I, I mean, I just, you know, I take the position that he's making two different classes there in Thessalonians just because he uses the exact same Greek phrase in the first book. And it just seems weird that he would use that exact same phrase and mean something different. You know, not, it's not an argument that I'd die for, that's for sure. Uh, I don't know who this is from. Excellent message. Praise the Lord. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you joining us. Or sister. I don't know. Oh, he uh, Bo clarifies. He said, I said, restore the earth, not destroy it. Okay. Okay. Eventually, restore the earth itself. I don't know. The earth doesn't need to be restored. I mean, what I think it's just fine, you know. I mean, you know, people go to Romans 8 and they think, you know, the creation groaneth. That's not talking about the earth, that's not talking about the dirt and rocks making groaning noises because they, you know, want to be restored. No, this earth is a beautiful place that God made. And let me tell you some people there is no global warming, there is no climate change, that's all a bunch of BS. That our government is made up to launder money. Okay, they're taking your money from you. Now they want to do away with your gas stove, your gas heater, your gas water heater. I mean, when is this nonsense ever going to end? Uh, just look at their predictions over the years. In ten years, we'll be underwater. And yet, Obama and all these other people buy waterfront property. Do you not believe what you say, or are you that dumb that you don't can't put things together? I, don't let me get started on this, okay? Let me... Has Gary DeMar actually declared himself as a full preterist? No, he has not. Gary DeMar is asking questions. This is the heart of the issue here, people. Gary is questioning things and they're telling him, don't you dare ask those questions. Those are not good questions to ask. How stupid is that? How ridiculous is that that you're not allowed to look at your Bible and ask questions? People, we're in trouble if you can't ask questions, okay? You always should be asking questions. You always should be growing and therefore saying, I wonder what this means. I I used to think this, but now I'm thinking this, you know? I don't know who this is from, but they said, you are the first I've heard talk of 70 AD. I see that too, but then I don't understand. Where does that leave us now? Well, you must be brand new to us, okay? If, if, If that's... I mean, really, if that's... And, and I appreciate you being with us. Uh, thank, thank you for being here. Thanks for asking the question. Uh, all you have to do is go to our website, breambiblechurch.org. Go to the website. We've got hundreds and hundreds of messages on there. You can see it in video. You can read the written transcripts. You can listen to it in audio. But you know, And we have a great search engine. So type in the search engine what you want. Second coming. It'll pull up all the messages. You'll probably get a lot with that topic, you know. Or pull it, put it in AD seventy, and it'll pull up all the things, you know. But go to the topical section. yeah, if you go to the topical section of the, it's got categories broken down that'll help you, you know, investigate this. I would recommend if you're new to this, go to Matthew twenty-four. And just study through Matthew 24. It'll probably answer most all the questions you have. But, you know, we're saying that AD 70 was the second coming of Christ. That's when the resurrection happened. That's when the judgment happened. It was the judgment on Jerusalem. It's really sad that most people in the church have never heard of AD 70. They don't, so Jerusalem fell. So what? Big deal. That would be the response. Well, it may, it's God's people, it's God's temple. It's a covenantal judgment. What's well, funny is, and I never saw it, but CBN made a movie about AD 70. Hmm. And I'm very curious what their take was. Hmm. Yeah, Jeff said CBN made a movie AD 70. I don't know. I bet it wasn't it's the same as th- ours. But... <laughs> and some people see that. Well, that's like a precursor to what's coming. Well, if it's a precursor, it's only things talked about in the scripture. Because, again, every talk about the coming has a time statement. Most every one of them. Soon, quickly, Shortly. There's no, and this will happen a long time in the future. And listen, people, God knows time. Okay. A day of the Lord is just a thousand years. I know that, okay? We're not God. And God wrote the Bible to us who are bound by time, and so it makes sense. If you go back into the Tanakh, you know, God tells Daniel, seal it up, seal up the vision. It's a long way off. And he's talking about a period that's about six, 700 years. He said, it's a long way off. But 2,000 years is soon? no. No, it doesn't fly, okay? <laughs> Silly. This is taken. You were talking about, and Daniel there said a time, a time, and half a time. That sounds like two and a half years to me. A <laughs> time, time, time nine, times, half. times, half. Times, plural. That's yeah, two. Two. Half a time. <clears> three. Throat> time throat> is one. Times is two. That's three. a and and half. half a time. and one. 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 <laughs> Yeah, the, the comment I just read, he said, yes, I don't know if it's his or her. Yes, I'm new, and believe it. Well, again, thanks for joining us. And again, if you go to the website, you'll just find all the information you need as far as what we believe. And appreciate you, you know, visiting here, being with us, and asking questions. It's, it's great. We, we love questions here because uh, we're supposed to be questioning. Unless you're Gary DeMar, then you're not allowed to question, okay? Thank you for your in-depth teaching, love, and praying for you in the congregation. Thank you. So much. I mean, we greatly appreciate it. I greatly appreciate your prayers. David, thank you for your faithful studies and always teaches me not to worry about my salvation. Glory. Glory, that's probably the biggest, best compliment I could ever receive because to me that is the most important thing there is, is that believers understand salvation, understand what eternal life is, understand who they are in Christ. Everything else is peripheral to me, really. And that's why when we did our, our Berean what do we call them? No, the, the different messages we did. Bring perspectives, no. Distinctives, Bring distinctives. The first one of the distinctives is in the gospel and dealing with this whole lordship issue because that's so important. If you question your salvation, you'll never live in victory. You'll never live in victory. But if you know who you are, and if you really understand what Christ did for you, so thank you, Gloria, that. That's at the highest of height of compliments to me because, again, the gospel is is everything. You know, eschatology is peripheral to the gospel, although the partial preterists say if you have the wrong eschatology, you don't believe the gospel. I, don't, I haven't found those verses yet that connect that, but obviously they do connect it. <laughs> uh, Anthony says, couldn't have said it, Or taught it, no plainer. Thank you. (laughs) Stanley. Let me see if I can get this. Uh, This person's a believer, okay? Okay. And they're going to be executed, but they say if you deny Christ, we won't execute you. So, are they a believer or not? If they deny Christ? You know, I think they're a believer. Listen, I I can't tell. I don't know what. But if a person believes in Christ, they're a believer. They respond to persecution differently. That was the whole issue of the book of Hebrews. Because the Hebrew believers, they came to Christ, but now they're being persecuted. And so they're tempted to go back to temple worship. God said, don't do that. He never threatens them. with You'll lose your salvation if you go back there. He says, you will be destroyed with the city. Okay, so there are consequences. And, you know, I mean, you see believers that are brave and they just won't deny. And other people are different, okay? People are different. I mean, you see people cave when someone just asks, are you a Christian? No, not me, you know? I mean, you don't even want to be associated that way, you know? It's just, you know... Sean from Colorado Springs. I feel as though though Israel's story is also a reminder of the way he judges nations and only every nation has fell because of it. We turn our eyes away from him as a collective. Think that might might mean something. Um, Israel was a special nation, but yes, God judges nations all through the book. He used nations to judge Israel. Then he judged those nations for what they did to Israel. So he does that. Yes, and I think the way a people goes, um, again, I've said about our nation, I think our nation, for the most part, is not as bad as the world's making it out. The media makes us look like a bunch of idiots, okay? The media, the government, you know, this whole you know, transgender and homosexual and all this stuff, they make it sound like this is the everyday and Hollywood's trying to push it down your throat. You dare, watch a movie that doesn't have a a gay on it or, you know, transgender or something. They want it shoved down your throat because they want you to accept it. The Bible says it's an abomination, okay? But they're trying to make us accept it. But it's not the general population. I think majority of people in this country are God-fearing people who, if they at least had some decent teaching, would would be okay, you know? So, I don't know that God's uh, looking to judge us, but He certainly could be. <laughs> oh, I love you, honey. My wife's watching, and she my my wife texts us in a question. I have a question: Are you single? Because you're handsome. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry, I'm taken. <laughs> My heart belongs to another. (laughs) How do you explain this scripture? 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. Let me say this about the Corinthians. They're the most messed up group in the New Testament. Okay? If you could do it wrong, they did it wrong, right? They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They're doing... He's accusing them of sin that the Gentiles don't even do. That's how messed up this church was. And in 2 Corinthians, he says, examine yourself, whether you be in the faith, so you won't be reprobate. I don't think he's saying, so you're not, you find out if you're really a Christian. Are you living according to the Christian life? Listen, when Paul wrote them, he knew everything about them, right? And he starts out the letter saying, you guys better really check and see if you're really saved. He didn't say that. He says, to the saints at Corinth. Those sanctified in Christ Yeshua. And then he says, saints by calling. He starts out a letter by affirming who they are. And then he starts telling them, you guys need to straighten your act up. You need to get your act together. Okay? Listen, people, if God was going to question anybody's salvation because of their works, it would be the Corinthians. Okay? You won't find it in the book of Corinthians. He tells them a lot of times to straighten up their act get things right, start doing right, but He never questions their salvation. He affirms it. I know there's a lot of people that just don't get this. Okay. I think we got them all. Wait a minute. (laughs) Okay, yeah, I did get that. Ah, they keep coming. Dave, is Colossians 1, 13 and 14 a bad translation because it does not say through His blood we have redemption? Thanks, Gary again. Because it does say, it does not say through His blood we have redemption. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. <sighs> He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of, his, of the Son He loves. In him, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I don't understand the question there, I guess, because, yeah, He rescued us. He brought us out of that dominion. He brought us into His kingdom. We have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. Now, uh, are some translations adding because of the blood I don't know if, if there's a textual issue here. Hang on a minute. I think there might be. Yeah, other manuscripts add through his blood. So there's a textual variant there. This doesn't, this doesn't hurt anything. It doesn't. We know how he brought redemption about. But obviously there's a textual variant there. There's a lot of those throughout. We know where they are. And they're not something that's going to you know, make us question our salvation or doubt what we know. Rick says, thank you, sir, for a great sermon today. However, you might struggle adding new members if you always make them join the band. <laughs> no, I don't think that's the case. I mean, we, we want to put people to work as soon. That's Matter of fact, when they walk through the door, we ask them, can you sing? Can you play? <laughs> if not, go down the road. No. Hey, he's, Andrew's been here for what, six weeks now? I mean, what in the world? You come six weeks in a row, you're you're family, okay? That's it. So, yeah. And when he walked in carrying a violin, we thought, hey, let's see if we can play. (laughs) Uh, Yes, all you say is the evil today and people are dying because of the evil. How do we put an end to them if we are in the faith? How do we put an end to them if we're in the faith? Well, I think one of the ways we put an end to so much evil that is in the world is by start preaching the gospel, start living the gospel, and talking about the gospel, okay? When Christians live no different than the world lives, we have no testimony. We have none. That means you're different. You talk different. You act different. People see you as different at work, a- on your neighbor, wherever. It starts there. Too often today, the church just blends right in. I mean, we got everything in the church that the world has. Right? And it's sick. (laughs) Someone asked, Have you ever read Beyond Creation Science? I have read it and I disagree with it. Okay? Disagree with it strongly. That doesn't mean I disagree with everything they say because, you know, everybody has some things right. But uh, as a whole, I disagree with covenant creationism. Okay? And if you understand the divine counsel, they don't go together. Okay? They just don't go together.